Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, the governor and state treasurer are in a dispute over who gets to appoint members of the Clean Elections Commission. And an ASU exhibit looks at the super genre of black speculative fiction. But first, Governor Katie Hobbs gave her second State of the State speech yesterday in front of a joint session of the legislature. In it, she addressed the need to close budget shortfalls for this fiscal year and next. She also called on lawmakers to approve changes to Arizona's Universal School Voucher Program, update the state's Groundwater Management Act, and address home affordability, among other priorities. Wayne Shutsky from KJZZ's Politics Desk was on the House floor yesterday for the speech. He's here now to talk about it. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. So what were the highlights really for, for Governor Hobbs? What were her main main priorities she wants to get done? As you mentioned, water played a big role. She wants to close some of the loopholes that exist currently in state law t- for things like wildcat developments that caused the well-publicized Rio Verde foothills issue last yeah. year. Um, also build to rent uh, developments that don't have to have the same water requirements as um, homes that are being sold. She wants to close that. She wants um, to give rural communities more power to regulate their water, their groundwater, which, you know, is something that has run into problems with some key Republicans um, when it's tried to go through the legislature before. Also, she uh, wants to provide some different types of assistance for Arizonans who low and middle income Arizonans who are trying to buy homes through a, a program called the uh Arizona is home, which mortgage type of assistance. And um, here's something she had to say about that. This program will help working class families throughout the state with down payment assistance and mortgage interest rate relief. Now, we're not exactly sure where that money is going to come from yet. Her staff didn't provide that. She's going to be coming out with her budget um, in a few days. And so we will probably get some clarity on that. She also talked quite a bit about education and specifically ESAs, Empowerment Scholarship Accounts, basically school vouchers. Last year, she said in her State of the State and leading up to it that she wanted to end the universal program. That clearly did not happen. What is she suggesting this year and what are Republicans saying about that? Uh, this year, I think it's safe to say she took a bit more of a measured approach. She, Instead of trying to get rid of the universal program, she's trying to make sure those dollars are spent how they're supposed to within state law. So she wants to – or maybe restrict a little bit within state law. She wants to get rid of some of those extravagant, um, as she called them, um, expenses, stuff like luxury car uh, – Train uh, driving training and that yeah, kind of skiing, thing. Things exactly. Like that. She yeah. wants to make all purchases over five hundred dollars required uh, have to be um, reviewed by an actual individual, the Department of Education, which Superintendent Tom Horn says is actually already happening. She um, also wants to create some safety measures, like ensuring that uh, stu- teachers at private schools getting these dollars have to have fingerprint clearance, like teachers at a public school would. Now, Republicans, even to something like that you know, kind of said that it's a non-starter saying that the schools are already doing this, even if it's not required. Um, So it was kind of all of them were non-starters for Republicans. And uh, Ben Toma, who sponsored that legislation, made that very clear. And here's him talking about that. Sadly, she continues her outrageous assault against Arizona parents using their own tax dollars to provide their children with the best education possible through Republicans' historic expansion of the Universal School Choice Program. 
So uh, as I said, Thomas sponsored that legislation. He's made it clear over the past year that really nothing that's looking to rein in that program at all is going to make it through the House. Does it seem as though there are any areas of agreement? I mean, the governor outlined a lot of priorities and Republicans in the legislature also have a lot of priorities. <laughs> Does it seem as though like the vet, the middle part of that Venn diagram, there's going to be anything in it? So if you go based on the comments Republicans made yesterday, that's a hard no. I didn't. I, I was hard pressed to find any Republican who was willing to say a nice thing about the governor's speech yesterday. However, just looking at the actual priorities, there seems to be a few spots. The governor said she wants to extend Prop 123, for instance, which um, is the voter approved measure that allows increase the amount of money from the state trust fund that state land trust fund that goes to education. Right. Um, Republicans already introduced a plan to do that. And we haven't seen the specifics, but they essentially want to use it just for teacher raises. The governor indicated she may want a little bit broader use of that teacher raises, but other school employees as well. So it's going to be the details are going to matter there. Um, The governor also wants to um, uh, increase oversight of sober living homes and uh, long-term care facilities for seniors, you know, things that we've seen well-publicized problems with in reporting by the, by the Arizona Republic, an attorney general investigation into the sober living home scandal. So that's the type of stuff where you'd imagine Republicans could get on board with. However, they haven't said they will at this point. Right. Well, and as you say, I mean, for a lot of these things, like you need to see the details, right? And be it with the budget, which, as you referenced, the governor will release her proposal on Friday or some of the water-related issues. Maybe there's some areas that once the details come out and some of the negotiations start happening, maybe there could be some agreement, question mark? I I think that's safe to say. Um, I, there's, you know, there's a few Republicans on in both chambers who have shown a willingness to skirt their, their larger caucuses if it's a issue they agree with. The problem is going to be getting these things to the floor. Uh, we live within the reality that this is an election year for the legislators. Mm-hmm. We've got a Speaker of the House who's running for Congress. Uh, and a lot of legislators running for re-election um, to the Arizona House and Senate. So are they going to want to skirt – are they going to want to be the outlier in an election year? And are these uh, leaders going to allow these bills to get to the floor in the first place? Right. Let me ask you quickly before we go about something that the governor spent a fair bit of time talking about, which is the border. Um, obviously, the Lukeville closure was a huge deal in the state, it, the reopening, an equally big deal. What did you hear from Republicans about what the governor had to say about the border? Yeah, the governor, she spent the good first portion of her speech uh, laying out her plan, which honestly looks a lot like former Governor Doug Ducey's plan, which is providing a lot more support to local law enforcement down there. Obviously, the governor can't actually federalize and and take care of actual border security. Uh, But again, Republicans, instead of, you know, we did see one Republican clap for her, but um, maybe a few. But once they issued their response, they were very critical of, of Governor Hobbs on some bills she issued uh, vetoed last year, like, okay. like ones that they wanted to call cartels terrorist organizations, removing Ducey's border wall uh, made out of storage containers, the shipping containers, yeah, that kind of thing. So they really didn't give her give her an inch on that as well. All and, right, yeah, yeah, and I'll continue. Okay, that is KJZZ's Wayne Shutsky from the Politics Desk. Wayne, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Governor Katie Hobbs and Treasurer, Treasurer Kimberly Yee are in a dispute over who gets to appoint a new majority to the Citizens Clean Elections Commission later this year. And the decision could have major ramifications because it is clean elections commissioners who will be tasked with enforcing the state's new dark money disclosure law that voters overwhelmingly approved last year. 
Hobbs is, of course, a Democrat and Yee is a Republican. Republicans largely oppose a ballot measure that requires campaigns to disclose otherwise anonymous contributions. They are asking Attorney General Chris Mays and Solicitor General Joshua Bender to make the call. Jim Small with the Arizona Mirror wrote about this and joins us now with more. Good morning, Jim. Jim, you there? There we go. I hear you, Jim. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Thanks for coming on. So what is the main concern here? Like that that ye could appoint Republicans to the commission who would not enforce this new dark money law? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is certainly something that could be could be the case. Right. I mean, I think Republicans have were generally at least Republicans who are active in politics um, were generally, I I think, a little hostile to the idea of requiring dark money disclosure. Uh, They've seen it for a long time, positioned it as as a free speech issue. And that anonymous campaign spending is uh, part and parcel with free speech. Obviously, voters disagreed, uh, including a large majority of Republican voters. uh, Almost 75 percent of the electorate approved this ballot measure in November. Mm -hmm. I had overwhelming support. And, And I think that there is some concern that, you know, Whoever is able to appoint three of the five members of this uh, Clean Elections Commission, it's possible that you could have a situation where if if the Republican is able to appoint the majority of it, the two Republican commissioners and then an independent, as Kimberly Yee is proposing that she be able to do, uh, that you could end up in a situation where you have three people who are, if not outright hostile, maybe uh, very skeptical of the idea of requiring dark money disclosure and that they could stymie the implementation uh, of of that new law and of the enforcement mechanisms. Hmm. So the commission, we should say, is supposed to be representative. There are two Republicans, two Democrats and an independent on the commission. But who appoints them is is supposed to go back and forth. Right. Like how much control will this commission have over how this new dark money law is carried out? Like how would they stymie yet? Uh, well, it, it would be a matter of basically it, enacting uh, kind of uh, kind of basically starting enforcement proceedings. Right. The Clean Elections Commission has already uh, approved kind of what enforcement will look like. Uh, they've uh, set up the rules already for uh, coming into 2024, exactly what it's going to look like when a complaint is filed and kind of how they're going to go through their process and handle it. But it's still going to require that the commissioner, commissioners themselves vote to initiate a proceeding. They're going to have to vote on then any subsequent penalties that they might decide mm-hmm. are warranted. Uh, and and so uh, that is... You know, I, I think that, that that is really one of the big concerns going forward. The Clean Elections Commission does a lot of different things for, for voter outreach, for voter education, things like that. This is really the first new and, and you know, reasonably, I, I think, you know, fairly important job that they've been given to do in mm-hmm. a long time uh, in you know, over, over the past 25 years since voters created the Clean Elections Commission, its mission and job has changed as litigation has really limited sort of what their job is and, mm-hmm. and what the what the Clean Elections Program is allowed to do. Right, right. So, OK, so Kimberly Yee has said that she thinks she ought to be able to appoint three of these five commissioners, the two Republicans and the independent. Has Yee said what she would do in regard to this dark money law? Is there any comment there? Um, she's been, you know, I, I think she opposed the idea of the dark money disclosure. Uh, she was among the, the litany of Republicans who'd, who had come out opposed to the ballot measure, uh, last year. So I, you know, certainly her personal views are known. Um, you know, the, the issue is, you know, really 
who who she would place on the commission and and who governor hobbs would place on the commission mm-hmm. uh if given the opportunity uh you know and th- this whole situation i think it's really bears <laughs> mentioning that this whole situation is happening because governor doug ducey for the last five years of of him serving as governor did not appoint anyone to this commission all, there are five commissioners all five of them have had their terms expire. They're all serving long past their terms. One right. of the members is serving six years past his term. Wow. <laughs> the, this, this is a problem that very easily really should have been avoided and obviously could have been avoided had the governor done his job and make his appointment so that way the next appointment after that could happen. That's so interesting. So that's how we got here. What's the precedent? Like, how is this supposed to work? The Clean Elections Commission has been around for a long time. Shouldn't the answer to who gets to appoint the next person be clear? You would think so, right? <laughs> ideally, ideally, the way this works is you have uh, the governor kicked off the appointment process back in, I think it was in 2000, and appointed the first person, and then in 2001. Uh, essentially, the way the way it's supposed to work is it goes from the governor and then the next highest elected official of the opposing party. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of times that was, you know, maybe it was the secretary of state when it was Jan- or the attorney general, or it was all the way down to at, at one point it was Katie Ho- uh, Katie Hobbs actually was the last person who right. made an appointment was Katie Hobbs when she was Senate Minority Leader in 2017 wow. I think yeah. so you know so, so we're really stretching back there and and it's supposed to alternate between the governor and the next the person in the next party uh, the, the highest ranking official in the other party the issue now of course is that Katie Hobbs made the last appointment she's now governor. Mm-hmm. The argument is, well, the governor should make the next appointment. That's what Katie Hobbs is saying. So she should get to go again. And Kimberly Yee is saying, no, no, no. The way it's been handled in the past has been that it's always alternated by party, regardless of who becomes governor. And so they want Attorney General Chris Mays uh, and, and her Solicitor General Joshua Bender to issue a formal opinion and say, here is the way we interpret the law and the way we read it. Uh, if if Kimberly Yee does not get her way, I would fully expect that she will go to court mm-hmm. to try to get get the get uh, the court system to weigh in and determine exactly how this should work. Interesting. So a lawsuit could be at play here. Chris Mays is also a Democrat. Will that change the way this might play out? You think? Uh, I, I think it's it's always possible. Uh, you know, I, I think that she certainly reads the reads the law from a more liberal perspective, and uh, you know. It, 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 it's a curious situation. I mean, the, the law really is the, the law doesn't contemplate this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And I think it, the, the law really was written expecting that people would do their job when they had to make appointments and that we wouldn't we wouldn't be sitting sitting six years after the fact waiting for an entirely new commission to be appointed. Um, you know, and, and, and the idea of the appointment process, the way it was staggered is so that essentially for one year, you're going to have three people who are loyal to the governor. And then the next year, you're going to have three people who are not, you know, essentially yeah. weren't appointed by the governor that are on the commission yeah. with the idea being that you would have you would have kind of a balance that would rotate naturally. through, right. And that's really not what we're seeing right now. All right. Lots to watch for Jim Small with the Arizona Mirror joining us. Jim, thanks so much. My pleasure. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, an art installation gives us a glimpse into the world of black speculative fiction.
But first, the price tag on a college education is getting higher in many places. But it's not just tuition that's costing students more. Our next guest crunched the numbers and found that housing is one of the biggest drivers of rising college costs. And Arizona State University is at the top of the list when it comes to increased housing costs. Melissa Korn reported the story for The Wall Street Journal, and I spoke with her more about it. So housing prices at ASU went up significantly over the past 20-ish years, even after adjusting for inflation. They increased by about 50% uh, at the low end and tripled at the high end. So the most expensive option nearly tripled over 20 years after inflation, Mm -hmm. which is an extraordinary increase. Wow. And how does this compare nationally? Because this is sort of a national trend you were able to track as well. Yeah. So Arizona State actually topped the list of schools we looked at. We looked at a dozen major public universities around the country. And ASU's high-end housing had increased the most and was among the more expensive options of anywhere. Wow. Wow. But across the board, it does seem like housing costs have gone up at, at most colleges, right? Absolutely. Uh, That's, you know, there's a range of reasons why, but overall, it's a lot more expensive to live on campus now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. How does sort of the housing market landscape in general compare with this as well? Because we've seen rising housing costs, rental costs are way up in in the valley here in Arizona. I mean, how do these rising rates of housing for students compare with just the rising cost of housing in general? So we looked at some census data to show the rental rates in the areas immediately around the colleges that Mm -hmm. we looked at, right? Because the greater Phoenix area does look a little different than, you know, the few blocks around Tempe campus. So we found that the rental prices right around campus increased at a slower pace than the least expensive option on campus uh, at at all 12 of our schools. So let's talk a little bit about the privatization of some of this as well. I didn't realize this had happened, but uh, your reporting shows that many colleges, ASU included, have done these sort of public-private partnerships to partner with a private company to run essentially their housing. Is this a cash cow? It can be. It's not always. There have been some epic failures on this front, but it absolutely can be a nice revenue source for schools. And it that is the case at ASU. They bring in millions of dollars a year just in the ground leases. So they lease their land to a private developer who builds and then runs a dorm. Mm-hmm. And uh, they often get a share of the rental revenue. So there is an incentive. The higher the rent, the more revenue you're bringing in, the bigger your share of that rental revenue. And in that, you you describe the dorms today, and they sound very different than dorms when I went to college many years ago, right? Like, it's almost like luxury housing in a way. There are swimming pools and gyms and all these kinds of amenities. What do dorms look like now? Yeah, they do not look like your mother's dorm Mm -hmm. or your dorm. (laughs) (laughs) So ASU is a pretty great example of this, where a lot of the housing either turned over from much more kind of Spartan, simple options, or in some cases, just they added a ton of housing. And what they added is higher end options. So gone are the lots of rooms on a long hallway with a shared bathroom down at the end that, you know, 30 people fight over every morning. (laughs) Uh, These are not, you know, eight by 10 boxes where you and a roommate get to know each other very, very well. (laughs) These are private rooms within a suite or sometimes shared rooms within a suite. Maybe there's four people in the suite that share a bathroom. There's often a living room. 
I would like to live in some of these places myself <laughs> as a grown adult. Uh, and they have many amenities. So a number of facilities at ASU, for instance, have pools and volleyball courts and basketball courts and lounges, you know, game rooms, roof decks, that sort of thing. Wow, yeah. uh, you know, they also, I should say, they also have study lounges and computer centers and places where classes even happen. Mm. So you've got people who, you know, take a course downstairs from where they live and kind of blurs that line of school, academic, extracurricular, which schools like and students say they like. Hmm, that's really interesting. And honestly, this whole thing is so interesting because most of the conversation that happens around how expensive college is today is about tuition, right? Like in at ASU, like President Michael Crow has pledged annual in-state tuition increases of no more than 3% for like a decade through the, I think, 2028-29 school year. But housing rates are not capped in the same way. What did ASU have to say about your story about being at the top of this list? So ASU says there are a lot of reasons why their housing has gotten more expensive, including, as you mentioned, the hot housing market in the Phoenix area. They also say that they are responding to student demand. They are providing amenities that students are asking for or saying, you know, if we don't get this, we're not going to live on campus. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the things like pools and gyms and private rooms and private bathrooms. They also say that the public-private partnership model, which, which you mentioned, yes, it brings in money for them, but they say that it allows them to focus their investing on academics and kind of the core of their operation rather than spending money building and operating dorms. So how do students' families deal with these housing costs today? Like, is this becoming a barrier for a lot of students to go to college or are they living at home in a different way? So not all have the luxury of living at home, right? Even if you're going to an in-state school, that doesn't mean it's nearby where you live. Mm -hmm. And a lot of schools do have residency requirements. You have to live on campus for your first year or your first two years. Uh, and in some cases, you have to live in a specific dorm because of your program. So they can't just opt out and find some cheap place, you know, a half hour away or something. They're kind of locked in if they want to go to this mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. This is part of the cost. So it's I think as it's something that a lot of families don't really think about until they're in the thick of things and actually getting their bills and choosing the rooms. It's hard to plan for because a lot of these schools have a huge range of housing prices, right? At, at ASU, you can pay well under $10,000 for one option or over 20000 for another option. And you don't always know which one you might get. So it's hard to budget for that. But it is something that families should be looking at just as they look at tuition and fees and all those other expenses related to being in college. Yeah, yeah. Is this contributing to the conversation around, you know, the student loan crisis in our country right now, this, you know, trillions of dollars in debt that students have across the country? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the interesting things we found in, in our reporting here was that a number of schools offer really significant financial aid but that usually is only for tuition and fees and can't be applied to housing. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some exceptions, of course, and ASU says it does provide financial aid for housing, but 
it's not enough to make a $20,000 for, a, you know, an academic year apartment very, very manageable for most people. Yeah. It's still a big barrier and, you know, you have to apply, you have to appeal to get out of it, out of the housing requirements. You can not be an honors student if you don't want to live in their housing. Mm-hmm. There's there's ways around it, but it could affect the education you actually get. Hmm. Interesting stuff. All right. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joining us to talk about this latest investigation. Melissa, thank you so much for laying this out. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Well, 2024 is here. No, this won't be a conversation about the election year we are now in the middle of. Instead, we're going to talk about food. What will the year hold in the world of dining? Well, from from smash burgers to high-end tacos to the reverse of Asian fusion, our next guest is here with some interesting trends. Craig Utier is the editor of Phoenix Magazine, and he's on the line now to make us all hungry. Good morning, Craig. Hey, Lauren. All right. So let's start with smash burgers. We're not necessarily talking about the burger chain of the same name here. This is a trend in the Valley that's taken off, you say? I think it is. Yeah. And you're right. It can't be confused or conflated with the uh, the chain. I'm surprised they didn't, you know, trademark the name or something, but it's being used all over the place. There's a restaurant downtown called Bad Jimmy's uh, in the old um, uh, Jamaican restaurant, uh, Breadfruit. Oh, yeah. Which, which went out of business a couple of years ago. People love that place. I think they love this place too. It's uh, gotten a lot of rave notices. Uh, Smash Burger. So it's, you know, it's a hamburger that um, I understand. I've had one before. Uh-huh. They kind of smash it on the grill to give it an extra char. And then they put use, usually use uh, American cheese. And, you know, it's not just uh, this place, Bad Jimmy's, that's using it. There's also a kind of a high-end gastropub called copper and sage on camelback i saw it on the menu you know it's like an 18 dollar burger hmm. one of those burgers so you are seeing it around a lot and i think you know i was thinking about this you know americans love hamburgers and it's a uh, you know love affair that's been going on for decades i think there's just an, a kind of a you know a energy to try to spice up the relationship every once in a while you know, we've tried hawaiian burgers we've tried <laughs> you know vegetarian burgers now we're doing smash burgers whatever to you know, to put electricity into the uh, into the relationship. So, yeah. uh, you know, you'll see that around a lot. We love a burger. Okay, so let's talk about the oh, diversity yeah. of food that you can now find in the Valley. Like we're seeing a lot of African restaurants, lots of Salvadorian places. You say regional Thai yeah. cuisine is a big thing right now, like specific regions of Thailand? Right, right. You know, it's been going on for a few years now. We just, our, our current issues, uh, eat around the globe or dine around the world is, you know, kind of the handle we used. Mm. And we just dived into, you know, every conceivable international style of cuisine we could find. And what we found is, you know, regionality is becoming a big thing, especially in, in Thai cuisine. Kat Bunag, the wonderful chef over at Glybon, kind of kickstarted this five or six years ago. Yeah. Uh, she specializes in Thai street food and food from Chiang Mai in the northern region, uh, Isan in the east. And you're seeing that happen a lot, too. Another restaurant people love is um down in actually in mesa uh it's called mekong thai tapas so it kind of mm. is like hint there that it's a different kind of thai restaurant you know thai tapas but it's not a fusion restaurant by any means it really is uh focused on isan which is the thai region in the east um people love you know uh green papaya salads that's from isan hmm. a bunch of other different uh dishes 
um, and he does them wonderfully. Thomas Samuel, he, you know, he's from Thailand. He moved to New York with his family. He moved here a couple of years ago specifically to open this restaurant huh. in, in Mesa. And it is wonderful, very much similar to Glybon in the sense that it, you know, focuses on regionality. Yeah. And is this, um, is this, Craig, you think like a reflection of the city at large, like this growing diversity of the valley? Well, absolutely. And you know, obviously not just Thai food. And, um, you know, I, people kind of get used to the, the mom and pop restaurants. Indian food's another good example where you have, you know, you have this kind of set menu, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, chicken tandoori. Right, and, right. Uh, right. And, and then what we're seeing now, I think, are more restaurants that are diving into lesser known styles. And that's, that's you know, it's a great thing for, for food enthusiasts. Yeah. Okay. We have to talk about tacos. Tacos are always, always big in the Valley. People love tacos, but now it's sort of high-end tacos, like gourmet tacos in a way, it seems. I mean, you see, that's been going on for ages. You know, I, I remember thinking 10 years ago, I should open a gourmet taco place. And it's, you know, it, it wasn't like any great revelation. People love tacos and you see them everywhere. Now he's low end, high end. I'm um, even, you know, Rene Andrade, the guy who opened Bacanora on uh, Grand Avenue, which mm -hmm. became an international or national, you know, sensation. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he has a new restaurant on Central uh, Avenue that, you know, it's, it's kind of a taco joint, but these are definitely, you know, $8 tacos, $7 tacos. <laughs> You can also, you know, you can also get the uh, fine lower end stuff. I, yeah, I think, you know, that's a that's a proven trend. Maybe, you know, one that's reaching its apogee. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another thing you mentioned here, which I think is really interesting, given the moment we live in right now, is this idea that restaurants have to have food that photographs well. Like, is this sort of like the Instagramming of the food world? Like, that's what draws people to a restaurant. We were talking about, you know, what it takes to launch a restaurant and to, you know, worm your way into the collective consciousness. And I think that food that photographs well is, is more important than ever. Um, it's that, you know, that foot in the door that you need to, to get your, you know, to get that initial uh, spark of interest. Um, you know, I can think of places where I've seen the food and I'm like, wow, that looks amazing. I gotta go try it. And it wasn't that great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, in order for that gets a repeat business, it has to deliver one place that I think has done that remarkably well recently. There's a um, Colombian slash Venezuelan Peruvian place that opened downtown in the Heritage Square district, mm -hmm. right across from the original Pizzeria Bianco, which is I think what most, most people know that area for. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called Cases On. It's uh, they have a it's a Peruvian ceviche called a teradito. That's basically a ceviche, but more kind of like a inspired by Japanese sashimi, sort mm. of a fusion dish. Uh, a lot of Japanese, uh, you know, immigrants in in Peru, and it's so beautiful. It has um, these this these this kind of uh, chili puree on each you know piece of fish, and the fish is cut sashimi style, not typically cube like you see in a, a traditional ceviche right and it, it comes with some ringlets of fried calamari I mean, the whole thing is just a piece of art <laughs> it's the it's the most gorgeous dish i've seen and it delivers it's and absolutely it delicious good. so that's the key it actually and it tastes, tastes good. good all right we'll leave it there exactly. that is craig Utier, editor of phoenix magazine joining us with food trends heading into 2024 craig thanks so much as always we appreciate it thanks lauren see you
It is January, and for more and more people each year, that means it is dry January. The trend to give up alcohol for the first month of the year has been gaining popularity in recent years, and our next guest has been part of many of those conversations. Annie Grace is a best-selling author and founder of This Naked Mind, and she advocates for a less conventional and sometimes controversial approach to reevaluating your relationship with alcohol. I spoke with her more about it, beginning with her own journey with alcohol. Yeah, I didn't even really drink much in college, but I found myself in New York City and I was told by a boss that going out to happy hour was kind of like the golf course. It's where the deals were done. Mm -hmm. So I made myself a literal plan to go out, have a glass of wine, a glass of water. And over the next decade, alcohol just became part of my life. It started to replace all of my coping mechanisms. And fast forward a decade, I was very successful in my career, but I was also drinking two bottles of wine pretty much every single night. Wow. Wow. What was it that kind of pushed you over the edge and made you think, like, I don't want to do this anymore? There was one moment, and one of many, where I asked my four-year-old son to come sit on my lap, and he told me, oh, mom, I don't want to. You smell bad, and your teeth are purple. And that was one of these tiny little moments that started to kind of pile up. And I thought, all right, well, this is costing more than it's giving, and I'm just going to cut back, which should be easy. The reality is I didn't find it easy, at least not at first. I found it kind of like being on a diet for alcohol. It was, I felt like I was deprived and I was missing out when I was trying to stop drinking with the traditional sort of willpower method. Hmm. So, right, you you take a somewhat controversial approach to sobriety, right? Like you don't tell people they need to quit cold turkey or not drink anything in order to sort of reevaluate the way they think about alcohol, right? Yeah. In fact, the first step of my approach is exactly what I did in my own life, which is I stopped trying to stop drinking. Mm. I stopped with the rules and the blame and the broken promises because I was just digging myself this hole of making rules for myself, like no drinks till Thursday or only two glasses of wine. And I'd keep them for a few days, but then I'd break them. And so when I really changed, I actually stopped trying to stop drinking and I did something very different. I looked at alcohol and I said, why? Why does this have such a hold on me and in my life when it didn't used to. And I actually spent the next year researching the why. Hmm. And through that discovery, through that information, I was able to very easily let it go. And that's what I teach people to do. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your work and, and the way that you address this with other people. I mean, it, it sounds pretty simple to sort of say to yourself, like, you know, why am I doing this? Not for any good reasons. And therefore, I won't anymore. But there's, I'm sure, a lot more to it. Absolutely. Well, I discovered that our desire is really buried in our subconscious. And so we've been more or less programmed since before we can remember that alcohol is beneficial, that it relaxes us, that it helps us have a good time, that it helps us be better at work. And all of these things combine to this feeling of deprivation and missing out when we try to take a break or stop drinking. Mm. And so when I was discovering, wow, actually alcohol, the net result of it is more, not less stress. It's actually making me less happy over time because things without alcohol alcohol are more of a bummer. And I was looking at like what is happening neurologically in the brain. All of those things started to really unwind my subconscious belief systems. And so I very naturally just felt like I didn't want to drink anymore. And it is a process that did take me a long time and it takes people some time. But it's amazing how many unquestioned beliefs we have around alcohol. Hmm. So for you, it was about research more than anything. Like you had to prove to yourself there was a, a good reason not to do this. And then did something switch in your head at some point? You said, well, I don't want this anymore. 
Well, the first big switch was recognition that I wasn't broken. Hmm. And I think that's where so many of us don't even start the conversation because we think if we even want to look at our drinking, it means we have a problem, we're an alcoholic, we're broken, there's something wrong with us. And the first thing I discovered is that like very few people are actually chemically addicted to alcohol, less than 10% of excessive drinkers, according to the CDC. And most of us are just doing the best we can with the tools we have. We've hmm. just been given this tool called alcohol to medicate literally everything in our lives. And so from that premise that I wasn't actually broken, that there was nothing wrong with me, it awakened this curiosity of, okay, well, why am I doing this more than I think I should? And that ignited the research, which, yes, really eventually changed my mindset, which made it easy for me to stop. Yeah, yeah. I've read that that people in the AA community often don't like your approach to this because it is not about cold turkey quitting or not doing it all together. How is that different? Like you change the mindset, but are you telling folks, you know, just cut back and that's also helpful? Any amount of drinking less is super helpful. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've been drinking for a long time, that might result in you feeling very deprived and missing out. One of the things about AA, the pushback I got is you're telling people they don't have to go to meetings. Mm -hmm. But for me, when I was drinking and I was faced with, okay, I'm going to actually in some ways make alcohol more important when I'm not drinking it by going and meeting about it and talking about it and staying entrenched in this quote, alcoholic lifestyle, even though I'm not drinking alcohol anymore, that didn't feel like freedom to me. Hmm. I really just wanted alcohol to be small and irrelevant in my life. And that was what I ended up attaining. And again, not through meetings. So you're sort of talking to the not the 10 percent, right, who have a chemical addiction to alcohol, but the the rest who maybe just have an, an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Exactly. And I think one of my big goals for myself and, and for the people who you know come toward my work is to back up the conversation, right? We, we don't need to have sort of broken our arm if our wrist hurts to go into a doctor. Hmm. Uh, we don't need to have to become, you know, rock bottom alcoholic for us to start asking a far better question, in my opinion, than am I an alcoholic, which is, would my life be better if I drank a bit less? And if we remove the fear of that question, then a lot of us can actually look at our relationship with alcohol more mindfully. You know, mm. we know more about ibuprofen or Advil than we do about alcohol. And so all I'm suggesting is just education before you decide what you're going to do and how your relationship with alcohol is going to look. That's a really interesting approach. So tell us a little bit about Dry January, which I know you have talked a lot about, I'm sure, this month and every January for many years now. But I mean, why do you think it's taken off in recent years? Like, why do you think at the beginning of the year everybody says, oh, maybe I'll try this? Well, the beginning of the year is just obviously such a mental reset for people. And when we overdo it over the holidays, you know, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving is the heaviest drinking day of the year in the United States. And so when we have all of that kind of hangovers and lethargy coming into the new year, a lot of us are starting to think, well, maybe this would be a good move. You know, a lot of times, though, when we go into a dry January without looking curiously at our behavior or if we're going into it as almost proving to ourselves, OK, if I can make it 30 days, then I don't have a problem. Mm. We're, we're entering into it and we're really setting ourselves up for being on an alcohol diet for the entire month of January. And just like diet rebounds <laughs> and weight gain, that can rebound in more drinking. So I suggest like more of an experimental approach, a much more mindful approach to saying, okay, I'm going to try to, you know, maybe not drink as much or drink nothing for January, but I'm really going to look at the reasons I'm drinking in the first place. Like, and is it helping? Is it doing the things I'm, I'm thinking that it does for me? That's really interesting. What's, what's your advice for people who might be thinking about this? You talk about the sober, curious folks, right? Like, where do you start? 
first of all, let yourself off the hook. If you have any shame or guilt or blame or inkling, maybe I'm broken, just realize you're not. And from that place of self-compassion, you can really awaken curiosity. And I even recommend that people go and time a drink, right? Have that drink, (laughs) time how long it makes you feel good. Chances are it's less than 20 minutes because of how the brain works with your blood alcohol rising for less than 20 minutes. And then it starts to fall and it makes you feel bad. And when you start to notice, oh, actually, the net of this drink is that I feel worse than before I had it. Just those little experiments, that level of curiosity in your own life can really change your mindset around alcohol pretty effortlessly. Mm, That's really interesting. All right. A good place to start for anyone interested. That is Annie Grace, bestselling author and founder of This Naked Mind, joining us. Annie, appreciate you coming on. Happy January. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. An exhibit at ASU is drawing inspiration from a podcast series in what's being called a super genre. Griots and Galaxies, unveiling the multiverse of black speculative fiction, is on display at ASU's Hayden Library through next month. It includes books, music and video, among other displays. I went to check out the exhibit recently and met up with Lauren Ruffin, who curated it, as well as Jenna Hanchi. Ruffin is an associate professor of world-building and visualizing futures at ASU. Hanchi is an assistant professor of rhetoric and critical cultural studies also at ASU and host of a podcast of the same name as the exhibit. And I started our conversation by asking Ruffin what exactly is black speculative fiction. Yeah, I mean, I think what we really tried to do with the exhibit was get down to the the what is it question. Um, And, you know, black speculative fiction is a a relatively broad genre of storytelling that spans music, film, television, um, and, of course, artwork, graphic novels, pretty much anything you can think of, uh, whereby black artists have made sense of and made meanings of their lives, the lives of our ancestors, you know, sort of where we've been and ideally where we hope to go in the future. Is it in some ways, an idealized or hopeful version of what the future might look like? Oh, it depends on the writer. <laughs> it depends on the artist. So I think that's the other really cool thing is you just get a really, really broad um, sense of where people are and what people are thinking about at any particular time. And of course, there's always real life context to what folks are writing about. You know, we see a lot about climate change. We see a lot about gun violence and surveillance technology right now. Um, but, you know, folks, authors is far back as, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois were writing, you know, black speculative fiction pieces. So what kinds of things do you tend to, to talk about on the podcast? Like what, I guess maybe what have you learned? What have you heard so far? Oh, yeah, it's great. Um, so we're talking with African speculative fiction writers who are either living on the continent or have moved here or are children of recent immigrants um, to, you know, different places. But we're asking them about their work and how African imagination accesses new ways of thinking about the future than we might be seeing in the West or in white speculative fiction. And so uh, we released a Halloween episode uh, talking with Toby Ogunduran, who is a a Nigerian writer who uh, writes about fairy tales and horror. And uh, one of the conversations that my co-host had with him was about uh, what makes African horror distinctive from Western horror. And uh, white Western horror tends to focus on being afraid that the violences we have done to other people will come back to hurt us. Um, But African horror is more focused on 
having transgressed some sort of uh, spiritual thing. So if you have wronged your ancestors, if you have wronged a sacred grove, uh, having transgressed in some way for your responsibility for community and environment coming back to haunt you is what African horror focuses on. Lauren, it's so interesting, I guess, like the perspective, right? It all depends on what your experience or what your community's experience has been, what you think about both the present and the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And there are so many similarities between what happens in the diaspora and what happens here in the States. Uh, Everything you just said, Jenna, is so similar to what we would see in the exhibit, whether we're talking about like Get Out. It's like totally spot on to this idea that for many black people, the horrors are actually real life you know, just sort of our perspective on real life and what actually happened to us. When you read, you know, some of Octavia Butler's writing, um, you know, she's dealing with, you know, the horror of slavery. What does it mean to have someone from the present day who was all of a sudden transported to the past? How, how can, um, what can we learn from the past about survival? Um, and how does that feed into like our sort of horror? Like the, the fear that we feel that we feel every day. Can we take a look? Yeah, let's do it. So you walk in, you're kind of in like an alcove here in the, the main lobby of the library here. And the, the first thing you see is a, a movie poster of Wesley Snipes in the movie Blade, which yeah. I think a lot of listeners will have either seen or, or know about. Um, why, why put this uh, so prominently? Um, well, the museum's curators really wanted it there. Uh, they did all the design, and again, I can't speak more highly of them. But I also think what we tried to do with this exhibit writ large is first we wanted to make black speculative fiction um, knowable. So folks have been consuming this stuff, but they haven't been thinking about it as part of black speculative fiction, this sort of lineage. But the other thing is um, to really turn on its head the idea of what should be in a library and what, what is legitimate art forms and legitimate sorts of, um, of literary context. So, um, you know, Blade is something that successful people have seen. Um, and I think the poster just sort of puts you into like, oh, this is what we're talking about. I probably have seen other things that are going to be here. So you give people a sense of they maybe have watched or read or know of black speculative fiction without actually knowing that's what it was. Exactly, exactly. All right, so what else do we have in here? Uh, So we've got a listening station. Um, And again, when we think about the genre, it's broad. So music is so central to, you know, a black context. Um, So we've got, you know, a a playlist from Spotify that's got everybody from like Janelle Monae to who else is on our playlist? Uh, We have some Prince on there. Um, We've got lots of well-known artists and also some, yeah, we've got Drexka on there. Drexka is a great punk band out of Detroit. Um, So there's a lot of fun stuff on the playlist. Um, and from there, we really get into the sort of four pillars of black speculative fiction. So the first one is identity. Um, and then we've got reclamation, survival, which also would be horror. Um, and then futures, uh, which ultimately is what we're, we're working towards. So when people come in, like there's, we talked about the movie poster. You mentioned the listening station. There are some other uh, pieces of art on, on the wall. There's some books in front of us uh, and some sort of descriptions. It seems like you're, you're kind of trying to cram a lot, a lot of information into kind of a compact space yeah. here. Yeah, and I think the, I mean, ideally this is, um, you know, the beautiful thing about this is it's in the library, so folks come here multiple times. You don't have to consume everything at once, and, you know, I've been here, this is my third visit now, and I haven't looked at everything all at once. You know, the first time I came, I, like, read the wall text. The second time, I looked at what was on the wall and, like, you know, checked out the, the video, which I guess we'll talk about in a little bit, but... Yeah, I think the goal is, because this is a place that people, it's not like some people are like really you know, traveling from afar, like you go to a museum in New York, you really get the chance to absorb it, you check out a book, we've got a book collection, so there are multiple, there are multiple ways for people to, and students in particular, to engage with, uh, to engage with this content. 
So, Jenna, I mean, given what Lauren had said, I mean, do you envision that maybe people who come to see this will use it a little maybe more differently than they do going to a museum or going to an exhibit somewhere else? That there's not necessarily a huge space here, but there's a lot in it. But, you know, you can come back and maybe check out a little bit of it at a time. Yeah, I think so. And then also... Beyond that, since students are always walking past it, there's always new people stopping to engage with it. It it makes it really accessible for anyone to stop and spend a few minutes and not have to uh, segment a whole part of their day to see something, but uh, be able to come back and engage with it multiple times. All right, so let's talk about these uh, TV sets here. Uh, these are not new t- TV sets. These are the, yeah. the sets of my childhood here. Yeah. Um, and there are six of them all playing uh, different videos. What are we looking at? Yeah, so this, um, they're old on purpose. They're also, they are very heavy. Um, I definitely loaded three of them and brought them over myself, so I can, I can vouch for the fact that they're heavy as heck. But this is by an artist I've collaborated with for a number of years. His name is Mark Saab. Uh, Mark considers himself to be um, both a digital artist and an outsider artist. And he's a black artist who really wrestles with capitalism and with the internet. Um, I love this exhibit because it's weird. And it's definitely the sort of content that you would not think you'd see in a library. We've got, you know, he's got a lot of different sort of ways of thinking about capitalism and surveillance technology. But I think it's, it's visually appealing. And again, it's just really trying to give students a different way with engaging in, you know, this, this particular um, genre of, of work. Jenna, what do you hope that people who come to see this exhibit will take away from it? I'm really hoping that they will start to pay more attention to the black speculative fiction that they're already consuming as well as seek more out. Um, I think black speculative fiction in particular offers an important gateway to making better worlds for everyone um, because if we, you know, no one's free until we all are and getting black people free is part of what is going to make the world better for everybody. Lauren, how about you? What do you hope that people who come to see this will, will take away from it? Yeah, I mean, similarly, I think, um, to me, the genre helps people make meaning of their own lives and, you know, helps them interrogate or helps us all interrogate, you know, power dynamics and structures that we're living in, whether that's capitalism or why we're having this huge climate change moment. I mean, I think about the workplace, right? Most of us spend, over the course of our adult lives, more lives, more time in our place of business and uh, with our colleagues than we do anywhere else. And yet, those are structures that are designed for militaristic contexts. And many of us don't work in huge military sort of contexts. So um, I think, you know, for me, it's always asking questions like, can the workplace be a place for radical change and for, you know, liberation? You know, can, can whatever context we're in, you know, however we step into a space, can that be a space for liberation um, and for just a better way of interacting with each other? Lauren Ruffin is an associate professor of world building and visualizing futures at ASU and curator of this exhibit. Jenna Hanchi is an assistant professor of rhetoric and critical cultural studies also at ASU. The exhibit, called Griots and Galaxies, Unveiling the Multiverse of Black Speculative Fiction, will be on display inside ASU's Hayden Library through next month. That'll do it for this Tuesday edition of the show. Be sure to join us tomorrow morning with much more. And we are on Instagram at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of the show podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.